choir. I guess you've noticed that Pastor Timothy is not here today. He is down in Columbia, South Carolina, working on his doctorate. He's doing research for his dissertation, and he'll be down there again this coming week, but he will be back with us next Sunday. In his absence, he has arranged for his very good friend, and he would call him a mentor, Steve Harris, to be with us today. Steve has been with us before, but uh, I'm sure you'll welcome him again as as he brings us a message that God has given him. Steve is the uh, uh, founding pastor of New Life Community Church. Uh, He founded that church, and then for 16 years he served as their senior pastor. And now he is with the state convention. He serves as a strategist, and uh, he works with existing churches as well as uh, new plant churches. He has a, a large area of service. He, he, he uh, works from Murphy to Morganton. So that's not as far as Manio, but it's still a big area. So, Steve, we welcome you, and we look forward to hearing what God has for us today through you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good morning, everyone. It is to, good to be back at First Baptist Arden. I uh, just want you to know, everywhere I go, I brag about you guys. Uh, I love your pastor, and uh, we have spent literally hundreds and hundreds of hours together. Uh, Timothy, is a, he, he's a dreamer, isn't he? And he has a vision, and uh, it's it's we're, the beautiful thing is to see the vision come to reality. It was a blessing to be with the earlier crowd downstairs and to see how that area has been transformed into a beautiful, welcoming environment for the community and to see what God is continuing to do in your church and through his ministry. And um, he said that uh, I'm, I'm, I've been a mentor to Timothy, and I told him, I said, I'm your mentor, you're my tormentor. <laughs> but I love him, and it's good to be with you. There was a well-known Bible conference speaker by the name of Ron Dunn, who was flying on an airplane one day, and it was one of those days when he was just absolutely exhausted from his work and his travels and, uh, you know, everyone talks about how, like, you get on an airplane and that's an opportunity to share the gospel with the person sitting next to you. But he didn't want to share the gospel with anyone. He was just exhausted. He didn't even want to talk to anyone. And so he got, he sat there and crossed his arms and just lowered his head so that he could just rest. But out of the corner of his eye, he noticed that the lady next to him was just staring at him. And finally, he just couldn't take it any longer. He, he, he looked up at her and said, can I help you? And she stared at him and she said, what are you? And he said, well, do you mean animal, mineral, or vegetable? <laughs> she says, no, what sign were you born under? Well, he knew she was talking about astrological signs, but... He decided to have a little bit of fun with it. He said, what sign was I born under? I think it was emergency room. (laughs) But that's an interesting question, isn't it? What are you? And I want to ask you a question similar to that this morning. Who are you? 
If someone asked you to describe who are you, how would you describe yourself to them? Now, we all live out what we believe about who we are. That's just reality. One of our biggest problems is that there is a God who is, and there is a God we think there is, and they're not necessarily the same. There is a you who is, and there is a you who you think there is, and there's not, they're not necessarily the same. And if you don't understand God for who He really is, and if you don't understand yourself for who you really are, it will cripple you from experiencing your highest potential and your deepest fulfillment in your life. Now, today I want to focus on our identity in Christ. One of the best passages of Scripture that describes it is Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be spending all of our time in verses 1 through 10. Because in this passage we see clear descriptions about who we were, who we are, and where we are. First of all, who we were. Verse 1. Now this is a real inspiring introduction. And you were dead. Doesn't that just light your fire? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, he starts out, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Bam! He starts off with some very discouraging and direct news. You were dead. Now, this is the starting place for every person. Because what he meant by that was, you were born into sin. We inherited Adam's Adamic sin nature. We were born into sin. And then, because we were born into sin, all of us have chosen to sin. King David understood this when he sinned with Bathsheba and was so broken over it, confessing his sin, he confessed to God, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he wasn't talking about his mother's sin. He was talking about his own. Now, imagine understanding and believing that at the moment of conception, before you even began developing in your mother's womb, you were in sin. Now, what was this spiritual death like? Well, Paul elaborates in the following verses in which he clearly describes that our spiritual death is a death, a life that is a walking dead, that is being controlled by three deadly enemies of the world, the devil, and the flesh. Now, of the world, it says in verse 1, in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now, the world is used in several ways in the Bible. It's used to describe the earth. 
It's used to describe the people in the world, like God so loved the world. And then it's used to describe in this way, and the world is anything that we would look to to meet our deepest needs that were intended to be met by only God Himself. Now, there are three ways the world manifests itself in our lives. It says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, number one, the desires of the eyes, number two, and the pride of life, number three, is not from the Father, but it is from the world, this world system. This is how it tempts us to look to other things other than God to meet our deepest needs. Now, the, the, the lust of the flesh is sensuality. It's anything that we would look to to meet our needs through our five senses. It could be living to eat instead of eating to live. It could be immoral expressions of a good thing that God gave us, a physical intimacy. It could be mind-altering substances, but it's sensuality. And then there's materialism. The lust of the eyes is materialism. And this could be shopping, retail therapy. It could be possessions, clothes, cars, houses, money, bank accounts, anything we love to collect. And we find so much fulfillment in that. And then the last one is the pride of life, just ego, superiority, achievements, accolades, admiration, being the best, or even just being better than the person you're comparing yourself to. And you know, you know as well as I do, comparison to others, you always end up a loser, don't you? Because if you compare yourself to someone else, and then you think that you're better than them, you're going to be filled with pride. But if you compare yourself to someone else and you think they're better than you, then you're filled with discouragement and depression, and it ultimately leads to bitterness and resentment. Pride has, it goes both ways. Neither one of them are good. So what is your greatest struggle? Sensuality, materialism, or pride? Then there's a second enemy who controls those who are dead in their sins. It's the devil himself. It says in verse 2, Following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is not just an imaginary little red being in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork and horns that sits on your shoulder. In an imaginary way. He is a real person. A real being. And he is always seeking whom he may devour. He is the thief that has come to steal and kill and destroy. He is after you and your children. And he uses certain tools. He uses the tools of temptation. Condemnation. Accusation and deception. Now, all of these tools are deadly, but I think one of the most deadly ones is deception. Because, you see, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Behind everything the enemy does, there's a lie. 
I don't believe that spiritual warfare is a power encounter like the exorcist or something like that. I believe it's a truth encounter. The enemy speaks lies into our hearts. You see, you know when you're being tempted. You know when you're being condemned. You know when you're being accused. But you don't know when you're being deceived. Satan is the master impressionist. He is the master impersonator. The way he deceives us is that he places thoughts in our minds and then he makes us believe that they're our thoughts, but they're lies. And he sounds just like my voice. When Satan places thoughts in my mind, they come to me in a Western Carolina accent. It sounds just like my voice. He likes to condemn me and accuse me by tearing down my identity. Then the last characteristic of spiritual death is the flesh. It says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now this is who you were. And this is who I was. And it is who every planet person on the planet is apart from the saving grace of God. You remember what it was like to be lost? I don't think we should ever forget that. I remember it vividly. I remember not having any assurance of eternal life. I remember what it was like to lie in my bed at night and stare out at the street light through my window, lying in my bed and wonder what would happen to me if I didn't wake up. Where would I spend eternity? I remember what it was like as a teenager to just be kind of aimlessly wandering through my classes and doing, doing stuff, but not having any real sense of what my purpose in life was. I remember what it was like to be overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and shame because of sin in my life, not knowing what to do about it. And thinking about the things that I had done, the things that I had said, the motives, the horrible motives that I had, the people that I had hurt, all of the guilt and the regrets that I had and not, not knowing how to handle that, what to do with it, trying to compensate for it. And so I think it's helpful for us to remember that. But then Paul describes a miracle that occurred that totally changed our identity. A miracle happened for you and for me. Notice that it starts out in verse 4 with the words, but... God. But God. This is the greatest contrast in the history of mankind. This is the greatest interception. It is the greatest rescue. It is the greatest intervention. It is the greatest liberation in the history of the universe. Praise God. We can say, but God did something miraculous in my life. Amen? The next verse describes not who we were, but now who we are. This is where we need to camp out. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead in our sins. 
And after that description of who we were, it could just cause all of us to leave here thoroughly depressed, couldn't it? But thank God we can say, but God. God poured out His rich mercy and grace upon you and upon me. He began a work of convicting me of my sin, of drawing me and wooing me to Jesus. He sent me a witness in the form of my mother and father. Maybe it was your brother or sister, or maybe it was a pastor or a church service where you heard the Gospel. And He took the blinders off of your eyes and He revealed the truth of the power of the cross that it can forgive sin. It can take away all of your guilt and shame. It can provide inner healing for you. And He revealed to you the power of the resurrection that Jesus received a new life, but now He offers you a new life. And me a new life. And that new life is the Spirit of Christ in me as the hope of glory through His presence and the power of His indwelling Spirit. And then... Through the kindness of the Lord, He gave me the gift of repentance. And He gave me the gift of faith so that I could believe in that beautiful Gospel and transfer my trust from what I had done to what Jesus did for me. And then something miraculous happened. When I believed, remember I was dead, right? My spirit was dead. But the Spirit of God breathed the breath of life into my spirit and I came alive spiritually. I was, And that's what, what it talks about when it talks about being born again. I was born spiritually. And I came to life. And then when that happened, everything changed. Everything changed. You re- and it changed for me and it changed for you. You received a new life. You received a new identity, a new heredity. You became a totally new person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. All things have passed away. All things are new. Look at what it says about you in Romans 6, 6. It says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him, past tense, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Your old self was crucified with Christ, past tense. Now maybe you're thinking, if my old self is dead, then where is all this sin coming from? Why am I still being tempted and condemned and accused and deceived? I still give in and I still struggle with sin. Well, Paul knew that question was coming. And so in Romans 6... He follows it with Romans 7 in which he explains to us where this struggle that we have, ongoing struggle with sin it is. Look at Romans 7.17. He says, So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, notice here, twice in this verse, Paul describes and declares, it is no longer I who do it. It is no longer my old self that is doing it. 
It is the principle of indwelling sin in the flesh. That's the culprit. And your flesh is like an invading enemy in your life. The principle of indwelling sin is an invading enemy in your life. Someone described it like, well, it's like a splinter in your arm. It doesn't belong there. But I don't think that's an adequate word picture. It's more like a cancer inside of you. Now, a cancer doesn't define your identity. It's not who you are. But if you attention to it, it can kill you. It's serious. And so is the flesh and the principle of indwelling sin. We never take that lightly. But we always act out. Remember, we always act and live out who we truly truly believe we are. The old self has been crucified with Christ, so because of that, you don't have to work for a position of victory over sin. You can work from a position of victory over sin. That's why he says the old self is crucified. And then in verse 11, in in Romans 6, he says, Therefore, reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Why can you reckon yourself to be dead to sin? Because you are. So start acting like it. Now you can work from a perspective of victory. You are not a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You are not multiple personalities. You are now a child of the King. An adopted son of the King of the universe. An adopted daughter of the King of the universe. Now let me ask you a question. I want you to answer this, okay? If you're the son of a king, what is your title? Talk to me. Prince. If you're the daughter of a king, what is your title? Princess. Now can you form those words to your mouth, get your name out there, and then put that title in front of it? Prince Steve. You're not talking back to me. (laughs) It's probably hard for you to do that because you're not used to thinking of yourself in that way. Well, yesterday morning, my wife, who is normally a night owl, she goes to bed late, sleeps late, she gets up at a quarter till seven. Now, why do you think my wife got up at a quarter till seven yesterday morning? Huh? See the royal wedding, of course. Prince Harry. And now... Duchess Megan, to see this, this fairy tale wedding, this royal wedding take place. Now all the guys I know say, oh, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to watch that. But we secretly know, we get pulled into it. I got pulled into it. And I actually enjoyed it. And I was just amazed and enraptured at all of the trappings of British royalty. The beautiful chapel, Windsor Palace, all of the clothes and the dresses and the suits and all of that and, and all of that uh, that took place, the pomp and circumstance of that wedding. Now, it actually was refreshing to see a little African-American color mixed into that wedding. But think about it. Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan, they know what their identity is. They're members of the British aristocracy. But Prince Harry is just a prince of a little piece of land over on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Your daddy, my daddy, is the king of the universe. And you are his son, you are his daughter. Now let's just imagine how much bigger the universe is than Great Britain. 
There are between 100 billion and 400 billion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy that we're part of. And then there are more than 100 billion galaxies in this universe. And now astronomers are actually talking about a multiverse. There are universes beyond this universe. I'd say that's a lot of real estate, wouldn't you? Your daddy is the king, and you're his son, you're his daughter. So now let me ask you, who's more important? Prince Harry or you? I say you are. Not to take anything away from Prince Harry. If he's a Christian, then he's a part of a a larger aristocracy. You see, without Christ, he's only a member of a British aristocracy. But with Christ, you are a member of a universal aristocracy. The Scripture says that. We are members of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, do you live like that? Do you live like you're really a prince or a princess? We should. Now, beloved, I want you to know this truth changed my life. Because even though I was a Christian, my identity was still all wrapped up in my past family life. My parents were godly, wonderful Christians. But they had weaknesses like everyone else does. Neither one of my parents graduated from high school. They were hard, hard workers. But we struggled financially my whole life. I never had the nice clothes to wear to school like my classmates had. My father had a really rough upbringing. He struggled with a sense of inferiority. And I still, even though I was a Christian, I still had my father's heredity. I had his that sense of uh, insignificance, that sense of inadequacy, that sense of inferiority. I was never bullied or ridiculed. I was just ignored. I grew up in the baby boom generation and just an, and because of that, you think about Asheville High School now, there's about a thousand students there. When I was at Asheville High, there were two thousand students. Imagine that. Five, over five hundred in my graduating class. They were sticking us in every trailer, anywhere they could find a place to put us on that campus. There was not one teacher, there was not one coach, there was not one administrator that could have looked at me and said, that's Steve Harris. I was just a number in the crowd shuffling from one class to another, feeling totally insignificant. Now, I worked hard to overcome it. I thought, i gotta get, I got to be good at something to distinguish myself. I joined the band and worked hard and Became the solo first chair trumpet player in the band. But that didn't really help much. Because that voice of Satan was always speaking in my mind. Who do you think you are? You're never going to amount to anything. You're just a snotty-nosed kid riding your bike around the streets of West Asheville. But in seminary, my wife and I came under the teaching of Bill and Annabelle Gillum who taught us the lesson I'm teaching you today about our new identity in Christ. I was just crazy enough to believe it and it changed my life. All of a sudden, I received a new confidence. I began to believe, like Paul, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do anything God wants me to through Christ who strengthens me. 
And I came to discover that I'm not just a dirty old rotten sinner saved by grace. I am a saint who chooses to sin. Before I received Christ, I sinned because I had to. It was my nature. Now that I'm a Christian, I sin because I choose to. I began to reject worm theology. When Paul addresses the churches in his letters, even at the, even the church at Corinth, which was an immoral colossal mess, he addresses them as saints. To the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae. He didn't say to the sinners in the church of Corinth. He said to the saints, if you're a member of the family of God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're saved, you're a saint. You're either a saint or an ain't. One or the other. Nothing in between. You see, there's two kinds of hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who plays the part. They act like someone they're not. A hypocrite is someone who acts like a Christian on Sunday, but they're not saved. And for whatever reason, they come to church and act, they put the face on, they play the part, but then they go back and, and, and live like the devil during the week, and, and they're hypocrites. Two different lives. But then there's another kind of hypocrite that maybe you haven't thought about, and that's the person who is saved. The person who is a Christian. The person who is an adopted child of the King of the universe. And they're not living like it. They're not living according to their identity. They're still trapped in that old way of thinking. They're living out the life that they thought according to the identity that they had that they got from their parents. But remember, you didn't just get a new identity. You got a new heredity. You got a new father. So my challenge is start living like who you are. And then lastly, where we are. Verse 6. It says, "...and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places." In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Your position in Christ is that you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, don't get caught up in that word position, because some people say, oh yeah, that's just my position. Listen, if you can't experience your position, what good is your position? It's also your experience. You are seated with Christ in the heavens. Well, what difference should that make? Well, you have a problem. You get discouraged. One of your friends comes to you and says, well, keep looking up. Keep looking up. And if you understand your position in Christ, you can say, no, I'm not going to look up. I'm going to keep looking down. I'm going to keep looking down from my perspective as being seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I can look down on my circumstances. Or you're having a rough time, and someone says, how are you doing? You say, well, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. And my question to you is, what are you doing under there? You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You can have victory over your circumstances because you're already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You know, so many of the problems that I see, I work with churches, like he said, from Murphy to Morganton. I'm coaching 60 pastors right now. We're planting new churches. And you know the number one problem that I see in our churches? Insecurity. Pastors are insecure. Staff members are insecure. Deacons are insecure. Church members are insecure. And it just breeds conflict. 
Because when you're insecure and someone dares to question you or criticize you a little bit, your defense mechanism is going to get, is on, is set on hair trigger and your reflex is going to be to defend yourself automatically. But if you're secure in Christ, why do you have to defend yourself? Anything anyone points out to you is already under the blood of Jesus, right? So if you know you're secure and whatever they show you about yourself is already covered under the blood of Christ, why can't you say, you know what, you're, you're probably right and if you really knew my heart, you'd think a lot worse about me. Go ahead and shoot me, I'm already dead. <laughs> but if we're secure, we can listen to criticism. And we can sift it. And if there's something, even a grain of truth about it, even if it didn't come from a person that we... We respect, we can take that and, and let God use it in our lives and respond to Him in brokenness, confession, repentance, and faith and, 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 and be forgiven and, and, and trust Him to change us. And if there's not, a, and whatever part of it is not true, we can just take it like wheat and chaff and just take the chaff that's not true and just blow it away and, and it doesn't have to bother us. So that's what it's like when we come to our position. And I close with this. The Christian life is a two-sided coin. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. That's what it says. For every verse that says Christ is in me, there's ten verses that talk about us being in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ and if Christ is in you, think about the security that that gives you. He's all around you. And He's inside of you giving you power every day. I like the word picture of a milkshake. What's your favorite, cup, uh, what's your favorite flavor of milkshake? Tell me. Chocolate, chocolate, that's what I hear. Vanilla, strawberry, whatever. You know, my favorite flavor is cookout chocolate cherry. Big chunks of cherry. Now, I have to get a big, thick, wide straw so that the chunks of cherry don't get caught in my straw. But imagine this word picture. Jesus is like the milkshake. And the straw is you. You are in the milkshake, and as you suck on the straw, the milkshake is inside of you. You're in Christ. He is in you. And He doesn't intend to just stay in you, but He wants to be sucked up out of you and into someone else's life so that they can be nourished with the life of Jesus. Amen? That's who you are. So, beloved, into your new identity this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you're still living in that first identity of who we were before we came to Christ, then it's simple. Just believe that Gospel that I shared. Receive Him today. And you're going to step into a whole new identity and a whole new heredity. It'll change your life. You're not just you didn't just receive the righteousness of Christ. You know what the Bible says? It says you are the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are. So start acting like it. If you are a saint, if you are an adopted son or daughter of the King of the universe, if you are a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God, start acting like it. If you are victorious over sin, if you are accepted in Christ, if you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, Start acting like it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. 
for this powerful, powerful truth in Your Word that has changed my life. From being so filled with inferiority and insignificance and inadequacy to truly believe that You can do anything You want to through me. And I know, God, it's not about me. My righteousness is as filthy rags. It's not even about who I am, but it's about whose I am. Thank You for making me and adopting me into Your family just like I can slide my feet under the table of the king, just like David invited Mephibosheth, who was lame, to come and eat at the king's table every day for the rest of his life. Oh, thank You, Jesus. Thank You. Let us never get over this. Let us live it out. Let us believe it. We praise You and bless You in Your name. Amen. Let us stand together.